Welcome to the Jagat Podcast. This is a continuation of the well-known Isbazar Podcast, a session where we get to know a bit more about the stories of our guests, from what gets them out of their beds to what keeps them wide awake on a Sunday night. I'm your co-host Jonathan Lee and with me is Norpiz Baimukan. And of course, our guest of the show, Izati. Now, before I begin, I'm sure all of you must have heard from Alex, Norpiz and our guest, Anisha Tandon, in our Internships in Tech podcast last week. If you haven't, feel free to check that out. Some quick facts about your beloved guests. I am Malaysian, born and bred, and I am a rising senior pursuing a major in economics and finance at New York University in Abu Dhabi. My passions include finance, education, startup culture, and coffee. Oh, and before I forget, I am also the co-founder and CFO of Jagged. Alongside me is my good friend and fellow co-founder of Jagged, Nurpeace. Our guest of honor for today is Nurul Izati Hasbula. Like me, she is also Malaysian and now finds herself across the pond, having lived and studied in London and Philadelphia as an undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania. As a student majoring in health and societies and minoring in anthropology, her passions lie primarily in reducing structural inequalities through better data and policies. Her research and career interests lie at the nexus of public policy, gender, and healthcare. And that leads us to Izati's next chapter in life, attending Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar for Malaysia. So let's just kick things off, right? Um, as we know, Izati, you have studied A-levels at College Yayasan UEM. Firstly, for listeners that haven't heard of it, what exactly is A-levels? If you can give us like a 20-second brief. Yeah, okay. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. So 20-second like elevator pitch. Um, A-levels is short for advanced levels. It's one of the most widely recognized pre-U program in the world, I guess. And it's based on the UK education system, and it's taken after SPM and prior to enrolling in an undergraduate course. It's usually done um, in about two years, uh, which is what I did, but some people can also opt into an accelerated program. So yeah, so you finish it in about a year and a half. All right, sounds good. Um, Well, you also studied at this place called College Yayasan UEM, right? Like, uh, as a Malaysian, I know what kind of college that is, but could you just explain, elaborate a bit about the experience there? Yeah, okay, so for people who don't know where KYUEM for short is situated, it's literally in the middle of nowhere, it's in a jungle, and so it's very sheltered. And because of it, I made a lot of great memories and really got to focus on my studies, and that is really where I made a lot of my lifelong friends who are still dear to me to this day. Um, In terms of my studying experience there, I would say a lot of my time spent was really doing a lot of studying for A-levels um, so because that was literally the primary reason why I was there. But I remember my third semester um, was incredibly intense because at the same time I was doing SATs. Um, so that was a very fun memory to say the least. What did you, what SATs did you take? So I took the SATs one, which is like pretty common, and I know they've changed that recently, I think the past couple of years. And for SAT subject tests, I did um, maths two, biology and chemistry, if I'm not mistaken, which was very, um, 
I don't know, it was very ambitious of me to do that because I didn't have much time to study anyways. But thankfully, there were a lot of overlaps in terms of the curriculum for A-levels and SAT. So I managed to fare somehow. All right. Well, I mean, you've been studying a lot, right? And I think that makes sense because uh, from our last encounter, uh, I know that you're a Kazana scholar, which means that you've been fully funded since after Form 5 which or 11th grade for our international listeners. Um, so f- for our listeners in general, can you sort of describe what the Kazana scholarship is and what are the benefits of being a Kazana scholar, aside from having to study 24 hours? <laughs> Definitely a benefit. Also, like, quite a high um, academic requirement every semester. But besides that, okay, so Hazana Nash, um, Yesen Hazana is a full right scholarship funded by Hazana National Burhat, which is Malaysia's sort of um, investment company that deals with our sovereign wealth fund and aims to grow our um, national wealth. So it funds people who are looking to continue their education either locally or abroad. So it's available for people who, like me, um, fresh out of SPM or people who have taken their pre-university. So if you're taking your A-levels or IB, you can also apply. It's also open to people who are looking to pursue a master's. So once you're in the program and you're funded, it is a bonded scholarship as per usual. So you're required to serve the country upon completion of your studies. So some benefits would be um, a full right scholarship where your tuition is paid, you're given a living allowance, you're given even a laptop allowance, book allowance. So as far as the benefits of Hazana, it's pretty top tier in comparison to a lot of other scholarships. Um, and they also have this leadership development as part of um, developing their scholars to become the future leaders of Malaysia because that is primarily what they're looking for. They're looking for people, young Malaysians who have ambition to sort of be the next leader leading Malaysia forward in whatever field they may choose. Interesting. Um, okay, let's assume that I'm Malaysian right now, which is I'm expecting some of the listeners out there would be. Can you kind of like paint a picture of the timeline of the Kazana scholarship, maybe start from Form 3 or Form 4, I'm not too sure either. Yeah, for sure. So um, speaking from my experience, which is, um, I, my experience was a bit unique because I sort of applied using my um, SPM trial results. There was a program during my year, which is like at this point six years ago. Um, it's called the Early Harvest Program, where they look to find um, young scholars before sort of the normal scholarship application pool. So they did it a bit earlier, but that's not available anymore. So normally what's been done and what's it's going on this year as well. So this year's application was between March 5th and 23rd March. And the whole application process comprised of first, you submit a CV and a personal essay and your results. And then once you're selected, you're given an online test after that, you have to do an essay, and if you pass that, you have a group interview, and then you have a one-on-one interview with the scholarship managers, and then you have a one-on-one interview with um, the Hazana National Berhad's board of directors. So in terms of the application process, compared to other scholarships, it is pretty intense, but it is to be expected with a scholarship like Hazana. Yeah, so we've touched upon your academic experience and the scholarship. And as we can see, you, you've 
been clearly challenging yourself throughout your high school. And as we have mentioned in the introduction, you've been actively involved in public policy. Going off that note, has your passion always been about reducing structural inequalities? And if so, could you tell us a bit more about the rationale behind it and how were you involved in this sphere during your high school? Yeah, of course. I think in the past when I was in high school, I didn't really have sort of the vocabulary for it, right? Like the only... I learned about what structural inequality was during my undergrad. However, growing up, you know, in a middle-class family, I sort of got to see the differences in the opportunities that I had and the privileges that I had compared to sort of the communities, other communities around me. And I think how that happened is really in a certain extent rooted in my faith as a Muslim as well. Um, in my sort of faith belief, like we're we're thought, we're taught from a young age that we are given blessings in this world and in the afterlife we will be held accountable to it. So I think growing up I've been aware of my privilege and the blessings that I've had and I've always sought ways to sort of do good with it and try to help others who due to sort of like circumstances and will of life reasons happen to not be on the side of the fence where I am. So sort of that's what sort of drove me to be interested in what structural inequality was and public, what, how public policy can help sort of um, realize that vision and ambition. Um, in high school, actually, I didn't really get to do much in terms of um, volunteering and policy work because I was actually in a boarding school all the way across Malaysia from where I live. So I live in Selangor and the boarding school was all the way in Terengganu. So it really limited my opportunities for volunteering. So I actually really started getting involved in university. Mm, makes sense, makes sense. So what were some of the extracurriculars that you've done during the high school? So in high school, I was actually um, pretty basic, I guess. I was in basketball, I did um, handball, I did debate, um, I tutored some other students um that's pretty much it i was think i was also in the student council as well yeah mm -hmm. and what was the most influential experience out of all of this fun stuff uh, i would have to say debate honestly because believe it or not i was actually pretty shy growing up i think from 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 one to form three i was i don't know i was brought up I didn't really have a lot of opportunities in my previous high school before I went to boarding school. Um, so I didn't really get to build sort of my speaking abilities, my communication skills, my interpersonal skills. But after I got into debate, that's sort of really when I got to use my voice and sort of learn the power of my voice um, to be heard on a stage and to make an argument. And I think that sort of really put me on a path to building my self-confidence and what allowed me to apply for Hazana and sort of be able to speak while doing interviews and really challenge myself. Yeah. Hmm. That's actually really interesting uh, in a sense that both John and you were actively involved in debate during high school. And I'm, I'm actually curious about the path to that activity right so I, I know a lot of high schoolers have problems when it comes to public speaking right so I, I can see that debate can be a good way to solve this problem can both of you share some interesting tips 
uh, for high schoolers about how to tackle this problem and how potentially getting involved in in debate can solve this problem. Yeah, I think I'll go first, right? I, I'll go first, yeah, sure. Because as Izati was talking about uh, being shy and, and ended up being so outspoken and the woman she is today from like debating, it sort of like gave me a flashback to my high school days because it was the same case, right? I was from a national school and I couldn't speak English that well. And after joining, not debate, but model United Nations, uh, I became more like outgoing and public speaking became literally um, a trait of mine in university. And I think that's that's quite interesting because I think across developing the developing world, I think many countries, for example, Kazakhstan, right? Um, they all face, we all face issues where um, critical thinking and public speaking is not that highly placed or emphasized on our education system. And instead, we're forced to do so much science and so much technology, engineering and math, and that that sort of limits the creativity of of the youth. So, so debate technically should make sure you don't forget what you say, but MUN might make you forget what you say because you don't think about what you say in MUN. You think about how you say it. So maybe Izati wants to bring in some points about debate. I, I, I'm now having flashback to my sort of debating time, which is very short. I only did debate for two years. And honestly, the only reason I was even selected for a debate was because um, as I mentioned before, I went to a boarding school in Kuala Terengganu and I was urgent, I'm originally from Selangor and when I was in that boarding school, there were a lot of kids who could speak English fairly fluently. So the teacher, the English teacher was like, you, Izati, you speak English, join debate. And I'm like, uh, that's all I can do, literally speak English. I don't even like, I don't know how to public speak, but okay, sure, why not? So it was like a very much a whim sort of decision. And I remember her saying um, after a debating competition where I got best speaker as like the whip speaker, which is like the final, final speaker, um, the teacher said, Izati, you're really good at bullshitting confidently. <laughs> Excuse my language. And I'm like, huh, is this what I learned in debate? How to be confident in what I'm saying? Um, so I think what I learned through that experience is that public speaking it's, it doesn't come naturally to everyone. It's something like a muscle that takes training. Like it takes continual training for you to build and to be confident in. And just like any other muscle in your body, the more you use it, the more you train and go to the gym, the stronger it becomes. It's similar to public speaking. If you don't do it often, there's no way you're going to get any better. So as much as you see sort of people being amazing public speakers, there was a time where they did not know how to do that. It's through a lot of trying and errors, a lot of like, like falling back a lot of like, like messed up speeches that they learn from the experiences and became the speaker they are. So to those people who are like feeling shy that they don't know how to public speak, I implore you to just give it a try. Like if you mess up, it's fine. It's not the end of the world. People will most probably forget it after they go home anyways. But really you're doing yourself a service by training public speaking because it really is a skill that helps you in the long run in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's really interesting point. And just to reiterate your point, I really love that uh, public speaking is not something that everyone has. It's muscle that should be trained. I think that's a takeaway that a lot of people should take from this high school section. So I think this is actually a perfect transition to our next session, your university experience. 
So the University of Pennsylvania is a private Ivy League research university in Philadelphia. Penn has a proud tradition of translating knowledge into social-minded action that dates back to the founder, Benjamin Franklin. This tradition of active uh, pragmatism articulated in Franklin's maxim, well done is better than well said, lives today through the inclusive policies, innovative work and impactful engagement of the faculty in UPenn and students and staff. So now it could be just me, but the introduction of UPenn sounds very, very similar to your passions and interests. This leads us to our next question. So as a UPenn student and current graduate, how do you think studying at UPenn, traveling around the world with UPenn and majoring in health and societies, which is major that we don't hear often, uh, shape your view on life? A simple answer to that question is really, it has greatly, greatly shaped the person I am today and the vision that I hold for the future and the ambition that I hold as well. It was really at Penn in terms of academically, where I found my calling in public policy. Because initially, when I first enrolled in Penn, I was supposed to be a bio major. Um, and I thought that was supposed to be like, you know, my calling. But then again, out, but then after my first semester, out of a whim, I decided to take this one course called Global Health, and an introduction in global health. And I became so intrigued by questions that I've never been forced to answer as a science student growing up in Malaysia. You know, when you're a science student, you're thought to memorize a lot of things and regurgitate, which is not a bad thing because we need scientists in this world who, um, you know, solve the big issues in the world. However, when I started learning social sciences through health and societies and through global health, that's when I began to, th I began to think of the bigger picture of the world. Like, how do we solve structural inequality? What is structural violence? How do we make sure that communities um, have a platform for their voices to be heard in policymaking? And this is really my key like takeaway for my time at Penn. It's really shaping my vision of the future where structural inequalities are, you know, if to, to the best that it can be dissipated. Um, and Outside of like academics, I think being at Penn really showed me the power of youth and the power of, um, to a certain extent, free speech. And how no matter sort of where you are, you can affect change with your voice. I think that's something that is really lacking in Malaysia, especially for an undergrad or a student. Um, we know we have like controversial stuff that stops us from like speaking about a lot of things. And in America... Although there is some controversy in terms of the lines between free speech and hate speech, to a certain extent, the ability to sort of voice your opinions is really powerful to enact change. And that's sort of something that I learned as well and shaped my view in life in, in moving forward. So you said that there is a clear sense that free speech can change, uh, change a lot of things, at least in UPenn. Can you give one instance of how freedom of speech during your time as a student at UPenn made a significant change? Mm. Honestly, I can't say specifically a time at Penn. I remember at Penn, there were, there, there were a lot of protests happening going around. And like Penn is sort of, to a certain extent, like a bubble. Like a lot of people there are liberals, so we all share the same views. So the, the sort of instances where I sort of see the power of free speech is really through living in America specifically. For example, um, I was very, very 
um, inspired by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, like her voice as someone who's never held political office. She like led a grassroots campaign and became elected. And she has been an outspoken voice in um, the politics in America and has really inspired me personally. So those kind of instances really made me aware of sort of my own agency in shaping sort of my future and being a voice for others as well. Yeah, I think I think like what Izati shared, shared was like super relatable because for Malaysians, when we think about freedom of speech, when we think about discourse, um, it's very hard to associate that to the sort of expectations you have when you enter in a Malaysian university, right? You you go to Malaysian universities, you expect decent education because we are definitely at that level where we can provide good education, but the extras that you would expect to be fundamental, like freedom of speech, uh, critical thinking, are severely lacking. And But what I think is the the sort of like silver lining in all of this is that you have people like me and Izati who did grow up in the Malaysian system all the way up until high school. So to to the extent we can say that if the Malaysian education the Malaysian education system can provide and produce students like me and Izati sort of gives you like hope for the nation, I think. Because I, I, I believe that Malaysia should strive towards not necessarily the states but we should strive towards a country that promotes freedom of speech, that can do a lot better than where it is today. So, Dex, to what extent do you think that the influence of youth like you and Izati uh, will affect in the short term? Or do you think it's just a very long term and very um, ambiguous uh, effect on your country in terms of freedom of speech and all the fundamental things that you've listed? Yeah, I think um, a good example of how youth voices have sort of enacted change in this country is uh, this movement called Undi 18. Um, so this grassroots movement led by young people sort of managed to change the Malaysian political system by allowing 18-year-olds to vote. In the past, I think it was 21, right, John? Yes, and it, and it happened very recently. Like, I think the movement... Um, went on for two years and I think only last year was it approved that young people should be allowed to vote at 18. So that's like an example of how young voices and voices can really affect change in the country. There's also digital, there's also the digital parliament. So there's also digital parliament. It's uh, something I also want to bring up because I'm sure Izati knows about it, but uh, basically the Malaysian government has been uh, to put it short, uh, refusing to sit in because of the coronavirus situation. But the youth of Malaysia wants to show the government that um, with the age of digitization, anything is possible. So they actually decided to set up a whole parliament simulation online. And instead of having the adults represent us, we're going to have the youth represent us. So that's also like, you know, the power of democracy and the power of the internet being showcased by the Malaysian youth on their own accord. So that's pretty cool, I think, for the future of the country. And on that note, I'm actually part of sort of a sister campaign called the 111 Initiative, um, where we're promoting women's participation in politics. So interestingly, um, okay, Malaysia is doing very, very badly in terms of women uh, participation in politics. Uh, it's really poor. And we were sort of hoping this parliament, digital, digital parliament, would be like 
a platform where finally we have like 50% representation in gender. But surprisingly, um, numbers aren't that good. Like in the number of women registering to be a um, representative in the parliament digital, digital parliament was still like fairly low. And right now we're trying to find reasons as to what is stopping women from stepping up, from taking a role in politics. Is it due to, um, you know, the way you were brought up? Is it due to um, feelings of like inferiority? Is it due to like a lot of other factors? So like sort of campaign I'm in is trying to push these doubts aside and creating a platform where women feel empowered to sort of have their voices be heard on the political arena. Yeah, that's actually really amazing. And I can clearly see that uh, UPAN in general had a significant influence because already as a recent graduate, you were trying to tackle significant issue of discrimination, gender-based discrimination in your country. And I can already see some of the aspects of um, culture of UPenn by just talking with you for 30 minutes. But can you actually elaborate on the culture of UPenn a little bit? Studying at an American East Coast Ivy League, what makes UPenn different from other universities in the US and from the universities in Malaysia? Honestly, I can't compare with Malaysian universities because I've never been in it, right? So I can't really say much about that. But I can definitely speak about Penn. So Penn is pretty well known about its pre-professional vibe. And I think that's thanks to the fact that we have the Wharton Business School. Um, so having said that, it can be pretty intense. Um, it's intense to the, to the point where we have this saying called Penn Phase, which is literally like the space where you put on where... Um, behind the scenes you're working really really hard you might be like brains out but in front you're like this amazing student like leading the startup leading this organization and getting all A's and not sleeping enough and you're doing a-okay um, so that's called pen face um, so it's 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 definitely has its tough points like being there not like not gonna lie but Having said that, there's a lot, a lot of beautiful things happening at Penn. There's a lot of cultural organizations. There's a lot of movements advocating for amazing things. There's an amazing startup culture. Um, so I think what makes Penn, for me, um, very different was really Penn was where I met a lot of interesting communities and interesting people where I got to hear and share about all the different passions that a lot of different people have and through that experiences really pushed me to want to do something myself you know because like when you're in a community where a lot of people are doing a lot of amazing things it sort of makes you want to do it too it sort of not only makes you want to do it but also makes it feel like you if they can do it you can do it too like what's stopping you you're you're a pen too you're a pen student you're like amongst these people so what's stopping you from doing something amazing too and striving for like creating a change in the world in one way or another? So I think that's sort of pen culture. You've mentioned in the beginning that uh, about pen face and and then you're ending about how being with amazing inspirational individual pushes you to uh, to work hard. And to be honest, I, I had a sense that it's really double-sided coin where on the one hand it can actually have very bad consequences so how were you able to manage to strive in in the environment where everyone is overachiever 
did you have times where you felt like, oh, I'm burning out? And how did you tackle that times? Yeah, I feel like definitely the first semester or like the first year was kind of tough. You always feel like you ha- you're not doing enough and it can get very tiring. And you always feel like you're competing with others, which is not the healthiest way, right? And I think on the flip side of that, being in America, um, I started to really value the importance of mental health. I think that's something that Malaysia is sort of building towards, but not quite there yet. And having gone through that experience myself actually has been an amazing journey for me personally because you don't really know what burnout or like somewhat depression feels like until you're there and you're going through it. And having been in that situation, I'm now better able to empathize with others and understand the importance of mental health for a lot of young people nowadays. So answering your question of how I dealt with it, I learned to communicate better. I learned to seek professional help I learned to be more honest with myself and be kinder um, and understanding that a lot of people are going through the same thing as I am and there's no shame in struggling because a lot of people are and it's okay to seek help when you need to yeah I just want to echo what Izati said about mental health right because again I didn't know much about mental health until I came to university in the Middle East. Like, that's kind of funny, but <laughs> my first experience was at uh, NYU's uh, wellness center where they said, if you have problems with your you know, mindset or your thinking or you're feeling weird or you want to maybe like do something crazy, you just set up a consulting or counseling session. And I went there for my first time in my freshman year. And I'm not going to lie, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, like I learned so much about not only myself, but also about people around me, you know, you start learning more about why people do the things they do, why you do the things you do, and you start to really understand yourself better. So I think like mental health, if we want to go off a different tangent, aside from saying that mental health is important, I would actually say that mental health is like crucial, you know. We need to have a curriculum in the future, especially in Malaysia and in developing worlds where mental health is taken as seriously as physical health because it is and if we don't do that then we are never going to fully um, discover the potential of a country if we don't allow those who are mentally sick to recover because they're not going to recover by laying on their beds for five weeks like how a bone would heal they'd actually stay depressed or they'd stay uh, insane for the rest of their lives and that's not something we want to be in so yeah that's a, that's a pretty interesting point that Izati brought up which was mental health yeah and I think on that note I think in times of coronavirus right now like the importance of mental health cannot be overstated there's a lot of people like it's very troubling times for a lot of people in a lot of communities who might not be as privileged who don't know they can put food on the table who might be um, victims of domestic abuse and have nowhere to run anymore so like it's an important conversation that Malaysia needs to have and I think we're slowly starting um, there are people like having voices um, pushing for change on towards towards having um, facilities available for people to seek mental health resources. We're not quite there yet, um, but hopefully in the future. I totally agree with you that the problem is not only in certain countries, but I guess the problem is very uh, relevant in developing countries because people here in developing countries, including Kazakhstan, are 
mostly ashamed even to talk about their mental health right and i feel like we have to somehow work together and share experiences share successful stories of for instance malaysia to actually destigmatize the talk centered around uh, mental health Now, going back to uh, your UPenn experience, we're interested in learning about one thing that is difficult to Google about UPenn. It can be anything from cafe near your campus to your favorite small things. Okay, so difficult to Google. I think cafes can Google too. I, I can share an urban myth about Penn. Um, so in the middle of Penn campus, there is this circle on the floor. It's called the compass. Um, it's where I sort of I know, just it's just like literally in the middle of Locust Walk. Just Locust Walk is the central sort of walk in the middle of Penn, um, and and the center of campus is like a circular stone, literally in the middle of the campus. And it's said that if you step on this middle stone, you will fail your first exam, like your first midterm, or is it your final? You'll fail an exam if you step on it. So uh, yeah, it's like and to after like right when you're about to graduate you will see just random people started jumping on the stone because like I've done, I got through. Um, and an urban myth to that urban myth is that apparently the urban myth was started by a frat nearby to sort of find out who were the freshman girls. So they would see if you did, if people actually, the, the girls actually try to step around it, but actually still believe on the myth. They would say, oh, that's a freshman girl. So yeah, no, not the best of stories, but... <laughs> I find interesting nonetheless. <laughs> did you ever step on it and did you ever fail exam because of it? I <laughs> I think the first time I actually got the get to be like this is insane. I'm I'm just going to walk however I want. It's honestly not until my senior year. <laughs> did not want to take any risks. As a Hazana scholar, you have like very um strict academic requirements to meet every semester I did not want to take any risks anywhere mm. so what are some of the academic requirements you're telling that they are strict can you give an instance of like strict requirements oh yeah um, you have to have a GPA of 3.5 minimum or is it 3.8 I think it's 3.5 I can't remember because I've graduated, but you have to meet it, and you—it's like a three strikes you're out kind of thing. So if you don't meet it in three semesters, you're like the scholarship is just off. Um, in A levels, you have to have at least three A's, or else you—they won't send you. Even if you get accepted to an approved university, if you don't get three A's, you're—they're still not going to send you. Um, so yeah, it's pretty strict. And to what extent do you think grades is important factor when assessing? the strengths of a student who has a scholarship? Do you think it's a valid uh, criteria? Mm. As in, in the application process? Not, not in the application process, but during the scholarship. Because especially in the university, I'm thinking that for a lot of students, grade stops being a priority and actually learning and doing your own startup can become a priority and that can negatively affect on your grades, right? Yeah, that's true. Okay, now that I remember, I think the minimum requirement every semester is 3.8, which is fairly high. Um, and 
frankly kind of unfair because like you know certain academic fields are quite harder like engineering is harder than for example social sciences that I'm doing so it's quite like unfair to certain that but answering your question um, I honestly think the academic sort of requirement is an artifact of coming from Malaysia where academics is very very important and you're definitely right I think it takes away from a student's ability to explore their interests and take classes that sort of would be um, harder and could impact that grade. I definitely have been um, have sort of made class decisions based on what I thought I could do well in. I was sometimes a bit worried to take classes that was interesting but a bit harder um, if I can't take it as an, as an elective because I was worried that I, it might impact my GPA. Um, unfortunately, that is sort of like the case. Um, but on the flip side, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, right? Like, if you don't have that requirement, what's stopping someone, like, a student from just, just, like, not caring about their school anymore and just flunking everything? Even though that would be, like, a worst-case scenario, right? Because, however, I have sort of met students who do become like that when their requirements are sort of more lax. I think that at that point, you just have to trust in your scholar to perform in other areas than just grades, you know? Yeah, but that would be such a subjective metric, right? Like how? <laughs> yeah, like how? How do I on a on a scale of one to ten? How much do I trust you? Yeah, and like how how do I say that? Okay, even though your grades are doing poorly this semester, you did this and this and this, so you're good. What is what is the bar for being good for doing good for that semester? I guess th- this can be a time to innovate the judge- judgment criteria, right? Because judging based on just one number is, as you've said, an artifact of old ages or like artifact of uh, very, um, I think, close-minded way of thinking. Because I feel like there is a space to actually innovate on how you judge the performance of a student based on various factors, especially given that uh, now there are a lot of tools to like have to analyze the weight of each to predict the success of a student. Because at the end of the day, the purpose of scholarship is to make it easier for people with potential to grow, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Even having said that, like, I do know that in the application process even like even the fact that grades is an important factor in applying for scholarships can sort of even be sort of I don't know sorry let me rephrase that the fact that sometimes in application processes for scholarships grades is an important factor can sort of be very discriminatory as well because to a certain extent people with privilege often do better in school because they have like you know proper resources can go to tuition can afford like a hundred different reference books um but without that like how else are you going to judge there are a lot of different things so it's just a very tricky sort of balance you have to pay to play even when i was applying for the Rhodes scholarship although it did not say specifically sort of the gpa that you need to have there is that requirement the unspoken rule of having at least a 3.7 to even be considered on top of having like a very long list of academic like extracurricular achievements so i guess it's more like it's like a minimum check 
for a lot of applications. But yeah, it's just quite, uh, it can be unfair in certain aspects. So Izati, I know you didn't sign up for a pop quiz after graduating from UPenn, but here's a super quick one. Um, what do you think about the global pandemic that is COVID-19 and the world's response towards this unprecedented pandemic as a health and societies graduate, of course? Hmm, that's a very tough question because it's like the world's response, right? Like who's responding? Because honestly, at this time, when you see sort of how things are playing out, you really start to see how different countries are doing it and the impact of the leadership of that country on how well the country is doing. For example, we have countries like New Zealand with their amazing prime minister doing such a good job and now the country is like COVID-19 is almost eradicated. Um, on the flip side, we have countries like America where leadership is kind of like not so there. Um, and you see the results of that. The, the, the numbers of deaths is insane at this point of time for a country supposedly as developed as America. And I think the wake of COVID-19 has really shown the world sort of the importance of good health policies. In countries where um, universal health is the policy, they're doing fairly better than countries like, for example, America, where it's a bit more like pri private healthcare, it's reign supreme. So it really shows how s social safety nets are important to safeguard communities and how there are certain workers that are usually underpaid in communities and society who are actually like frontliners who should be paying more and who should uh, who are like doing what is important for society to function. So I feel like COVID-19 has really shown, one, the importance of good leadership in leading countries, two, the importance of social safety nets and safeguarding communities, and three, sort of the hidden workers who really hold society together that should really be given um, more pay or more rep for the work that they do. Thing, I think that makes a lot of sense. And but the thing that troubles me is that when you talk about reasons like uh, high safety nets, social nets, sorry, and also um, uh, more appreciation for the frontline workers and good leadership, that oftentimes isn't the focus of um, world media, right? You have a lot of media preferring to focus on issues like politics and uh, national ideologies, uh, consistently blaming other countries for not doing their job, and then those countries would then fabricate information and say that the virus didn't come from us, it came from somewhere else. Like, and that seems to be taking the center stage, you know, when clearly opinions like yours should be on the center stage. So, I mean, if, since, since we're already going on this topic, how do you think people like you can get your voice online and when I mean you, I don't mean you as a university student, but you as someone involved in the health and society sphere, you know, a sphere that obviously should have more weight in this discussion compared to politics or ideologies or, you know, sensationalism, which is just outrageous. Okay, having said that, I, I'm still just like a university student, but I guess voices like people within the health field, right? Uh, 
that is quite a difficult question to answer because you can't deny that politics is to a certain extent how we've sort of decided to function as a society like politics is sort of the mechanism for leadership in a lot of societies right like to affect change is true politics because politics is like supposed to be the pillar for democracy and democracy is supposed to be what's um, allowing people to have a voice on a different on a higher level and like true representation however when politics gets very messy and the core of democracy which is representing people's voices are forgotten that's when things starts going haywire and that's when as you mentioned before sensationalism sort of takes over i think how how voices um for example people who are academics in health policy um doctors can become more put forth i think really media plays a great great role besides social media of course social media is amazing platform notice that has democratized communication for a lot of people um but mainstream media i think plays an important role as you mentioned to make sure that the right voices are given priority over others however that is way easier said than done yeah okay um that is quite disappointing to be honest but at least we have social media right but even as social media is also very problematic right because there's not a lot of um, fact checking and there can be a lot of like internet warriors with problematic views so yeah moving on we're now on to our next section with Vizati speaking more about her success as a road scholar from Malaysia at Oxford University So COVID-19 is one of the many examples of global problems that Rhodes scholars are aiming to solve. For the listeners who do not know about Rhodes, the Rhodes scholarship is an international postgraduate award for students to study at the University of Oxford. Rhodes recipients have achieved fame as politicians, academics, scientists, authors, and entrepreneurs. Notable American political recipients include President of the United States Bill Clinton, President of Pakistan Wasim Sajjad, author Naomi Wolf and president of Planned Parenthood Liana Wen. So this is a question directed to Izati. You are now at a phase of your life where you're being grouped with the likes of Bill Clinton and Naomi Wolf. How does that make you feel and do you think that being a Rhodes scholar will be as impactful as being a UPenn student? How does it make me feel to be grouped with the likes of Bill Clinton and Naomi Wolf? Well, one word um a lot of pressure right but at the same time i think that pressure really drives me to meet that expectation um because once you've been given this opportunity that a lot a lot of people have it really pushes me personally to sort of make the most out of it and not to waste this amazing gift and blessing that i've been given somehow Um and in question of whether I think that road scholarship will be as impactful as my time at Penn 100%. I think the biggest point about the road scholarship beyond um being able to study at Oxford is really meeting other road scholars. And I've mentioned before what Penn gave to me is being part of a community where a lot of people are achieving amazing things and pushed me to sort of want to aim um for change as well. And I think roads 
will put me through that very same sort of trajectory. Like being with other Rhodes Scholars, people who are passionate in their field, people um, who have a vision to change the world, people who sort of want to put their voice out there and make an impact. I think being with such a community will push me and develop me to become the best person I can be in terms of my goal of coming back to Malaysia and contributing in health policy and contributing in reducing the structural inequalities that that is present in our country. So yes, there's a lot of pressure, but I hope to take it in stride. Mm, Maybe one more question about that. Like, it seems like you have all these emotions when you're talking about being a Rhodes Scholar and all that. Maybe you want to share a bit of those emotions with our viewers and listeners. How, how do you feel like leading up to, like, when, when, would, when are you going to Oxford and how do you think you're going to prepare yourself for the next few months? Yeah, so I'm leaving for Oxford um, late September. Yeah, so I'm flying off to the UK around that time. In terms of emotions, there's been a lot of ups and downs. I feel like for the longest time, I was struggling with imposter syndrome. Um, even after getting Rhodes Scholarship, I'm like still wondering how the hell did I get here? Like, I feel like I don't deserve this. I feel like there's a lot of other amazing people who should have gotten it other than me. I feel like comparing myself to this other Rhodes Scholar that I know, um, another major Rhodes Scholar, I think from a couple of years ago, I'm like, this guy took three majors, three minors, and studied abroad a lot. This guy is Rhodes Scholar. Me, I mean, like, I, I, I did my best in school, but, like, I did a major and minor in three things. So I think imposter syndrome is definitely something that I struggled with. And after talking to other Rhodes Scholars um, from other, like, um, countries, apparently it's not that uncommon. Um, so sort of the personal journey that I had to go through is sort of working through that emotion and understanding that, yes, you might feel that you don't belong but the matter of fact is you're here you got the road scholarship the question now is not how i got here but what i hope to do moving forward so that has sort of been my driving force like forget the doubts you're already moving on to the next stage of your life like you only have two years as a road scholar in oxford what are you going to do to make sure that this two years is not wasted so planning in terms of the projects I hope to be a part of, in terms of the clubs I hope to be a part of, in terms of the organization I hope to volunteer at. Those are sort of the kind of things I'm prepping myself um, to do as I enter into this next phase of my life. That's really cool. I think that uh, you definitely deserve to be the Rhodes Scholar. And I'm not basing that off objective facts or anything because, again, I'm the kind who prefers... uh, emotion and subjectivity in in sort of decision making right i prefer to be more eq than iq and i think that when you compare yourself with other road scholars and you say how they have three majors and they have three minors well if we're going to base that off who gets to be the road scholar then in 20 years down the road probably will be an ai called mr johnny who can major in 100 subjects in one minute you know but i think you know that's why humans remain human and we remain superior as, 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 at least for the next few centuries as a superior species and I think that's why you got the Rhodes Scholar you know like there, there are some things that you can't tell on the paper and, I, and those things can only be felt with, with voice and emotion and, and someone's figure 
I think those are qualities that you definitely have. So I would I wouldn't worry if I was you that whether or not I would be the road scholar. I would worry if I was the road scholar because I don't think I can be the road scholar. <laughs> so I think that moves us to the the next question. Was it hard getting the road scholarship, and how was the application timeline like? And what kind of students should try and apply to become a road scholar? I know you touched a bit about that, but if you can make it more general so the viewers out there from all nationalities can sort of understand the process. Yeah, of course. Um, so a disclaimer, each sort of road scholarship application process differs based on the country you're from. So I can speak only um, Malaysia's road scholarship application process, right? So in terms of whether it was hard, I think the most difficult part of applying for road scholarship is really, and you will hear this a lot if you talk to other road scholars, is sort of crafting your narrative. And what this is, is sort of finding that thread that links what you've done in the past, what, your passion, what you've done in the past, what you're doing now, what you hope to achieve in the future, and how Rhodes and Oxford sort of play some part in that story. And finding like a good enough narrative beneath all the things that you've done in the past was definitely hard for me because it was like a lot of soul searching um, and you don't know till you've tried it like finding a narrative for your whole life is very very difficult um, yeah <laughs> so in terms of the application timeline um, I was intrigued by the Rhodes Scholarship ever since I was um, a sophomore which is my second year because at that point of time, there was a senior who was Malaysian who got the Rhodes Scholarship. And the thing with with knowing someone who is a friend of yours who achieved sort of the Rhodes Scholarship, it sort of humanizes the scholarship a bit more. Because or else all you hear is that it's the scholarship for Bill Clinton and Naomi Wolf. I'm like, okay, maybe not me. I'm no Bill Clinton. But when you know someone who got the Rhodes Scholarship, it sort of makes it a bit more, huh, doable, I guess. Like you sort of it, it prompts you to begin imagining like maybe I can do it too so that's sort of what got my gears turning to sort of maybe even try to dream that maybe I can be a Rhodes Scholar so the next few years I sort of had that in the back of my mind as I go about my interest in volunteering in research um, and apply during around this time actually last year so right now it's actually the application um, period. You can actually apply to be a Rhodes Scholar now if you want to. <laughs> um, yeah, so around this time I was applying. Um, I did, I, you know, got my CV together. I did my personal statement, which was very difficult to write. There was like a lot of, lot of drafts on that. And I sent it in and prayed for the best. And then I think um, in about a month and a half, I heard back that I was called in. I, I was called in for an interview. So what the interview was, was basically, I literally had to fly from America to Malaysia to do the interview in person. And thankfully, sort of Penn paid for that. Um, so I got on a plane with, just by myself. And when I got there, there were five other finalists. So among those finalists, there was me, there was two other undergrads and um, two other people who were already working actually. So there was like a, a dinner session. And after, the day after that, was the interview and what the interview comprised of was uh, a panel of I think six people um, there was 
a McKinsey partner who is to be a Rhodes Scholar. There is a politician from Malaysia. There is a person who is leading an NGO in Malaysia. There was a professor as well. So they're all like asking me questions about my vision, my passion, sort of what I hope to achieve. Um, and a, a week later, I found that, that I was a Rhodes Scholar. I got an email. And honestly, I remember when I was opening the email, I was so ready to be rejected. I had to read the congratulations part like three times so that I'm not like celebrating early. Like, am I reading this wrong? Um, so yeah, it was quite a surprise when I found out. But in terms of going on to your next question, which is what kind of students should try and apply, I honestly think that anyone out there who sort of have a vision to change the world for the better, have sort of done things in the past that aligns with that vision, um, is passionate enough to pursue that vision like seriously and believes that going to Oxford and going to Rhodes can really, really become sort of platform to push you towards realizing that dream, you should try and apply. Um, because what's stopping you? Like it's an open application. And you literally have nothing to lose and it's free. You don't have to pay for anything to apply. Um, because I really think, I go by the motto personally that you regret the things that you don't do rather than the things that you do and you fail. That you regret the, the shots that you don't take more than regrets the shots that you take and failed on. Um, so I think if those criteria, if you have a dream, you have a passion, you really want to pursue it and make a good difference in this world, in Malaysia, that apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. You can even like, like message me on Facebook. I'd be more than happy to speak with you. <laughs> All right, so you know who the message. Um, what Izati said was basically YOLO, you only live once, and might as well apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. <laughs> and of course, like, I, I mean, I want to also pass this to my co-host, Nupis. I'm sure he's also very, you know, filled with intelligence, and uh, I, I don't want to list out his achievements because it'd probably take too long, but maybe he wants to share, like, one story of him facing, like, an issue of applying and not sure if he has the capabilities to and ends up getting it. I wonder if Nurpees has a story to share. Yeah, definitely. I think every application that I make, I always feel like I'm not good enough for it. Or at least I feel like I will have to learn much more to apply, but still I applied for some of the opportunities. Applying to universities is one of the examples as an undergrad. And the other one right now is applying to jobs. So... Uh, for the past year, I've been actively applying for some software engineering positions, some research positions in uh, natural language uh, processing field. And to be honest, uh, whenever I got some positions, I know that there is a lot of work behind it. But at the same time, every time I get something, I realize that there is a huge luck involved in everything so like the more you apply the more you realize that it's not your intelligence and it's not how much you work that is that might be the integral part but it's also about the luck the time and the place that you applied to and the interviewer that actually had an interview with you right so i was actually because um, like i have uh, experiences were uh, some of the interview questions for so for software engineering positions it's more like algorithmic questions they might be much easier but i won't have 
as good answer just because the interviewer is being a bit rude and not as uh, passionate and not helpful and then I'll just get confused right but then when it comes to the times when I had like very objectively difficult questions I would be much better just because the interviewer was very kind and was able to listen to my ideas and guide me through the interview if there were some parts that he or she didn't understand so I feel like uh, I don't know whether it uh, resonates with you Azati uh, whenever I apply I realize that life is just sequence of a lot of luck you put effort but at the end everything boils down to luck <laughs> i i feel like to say is that yes i agree but on that note, i would also put like some disclaimer that preparation matters as much as luck is a factor you need to prepare you can't just be like oh, okay everything is supposed to like i don't need to prepare. i remember because like for me during the rose process i to prepare for the interview, I literally had hours and hours of monologue like recorded on my phone just for me to practice like sharing my story or like making sure that my words came out smoothly to make sure that my story made sense. I'm not jumbling my words and I'm answering the question that they're asking me. I also had like prep interviews. Like thankfully, Penn was such great support. They actually um, organized a panel interview session with professors at Penn or like other scholars, people who had wrote scholars in the past to interview me. And I had two of those and they gave me feedback. And from then I sort of made myself better. So luck definitely plays a part because for example, if I was sick or if the interviewer was like not in a good mood, I might not have been, you know, perform as well, but preparation definitely matters as well. So yeah, I just wanted to summarize for our viewers that both Norpees and Izati uh, essentially uh, touched on things that uh, come from my favorite philosopher, to be honest. His name is Seneca, and he has a quote which says, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And I think that really resonates with both of these uh, people because, you know, like one person is saying that life is just a sequence of lucky events and the other person is saying, well, self-disclaimer, you have to be prepared. So I think that kind of sums it up, right? Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. By Seneca, if you want to look that up. I feel like you deserve a mic drop just for that quoting up that quote. So Izati, right, this is to you. As a Malaysian, do you think you represent the sort of spirit and hustle that the Malaysian youth has today? How attached are you to your Malaysian identity after having been abroad for so long? So yeah, I feel like it would be very pompous of me to say that I represent the spirit and hustle of the Malaysian youth, but I feel like I try to. I try to sort of um, sort of collect energy from other Malaysian, amazing Malaysian youth, like you, who, you know, hustle and strive for the better, you know? I, I feel like I learn a lot from being with amazing people, and really that's what pushed me. Um, in terms of how attached I am to my Malaysian identity, I feel like it's definitely, definitely very, very close to my heart. I realize greatly how the opportunities I've had that brought me to where I am today and made me who I am is thanks so much to my Malaysian upbringing, um, to the people that I've met in Malaysia, to 
my scholarship that is somewhat paid for by taxpayers' money, like they put faith in me and believe in me and invested in me as a person, and even wrote scholarship, which is somewhat like sort of managed by Yasin Hazana, which is also sort of funded by Hazana National Barhat. You know, to a certain extent, it just takes taxpayers' money. Um, so Malaysia is something that's very close because I realized that without this country, I would not be the person I am today, which is definitely why in the long run, I hope to come back and, you know, serve and make a change. Yeah, I think I think Malaysia definitely faces a lot of brain drain issues. You know, you have people like you who obviously want to come back and you have people like me who would like to come back and many more people who equally would want to come back. I'm pretty sure no Malaysian would say, no, I don't want to be in Malaysia. But unfortunately, there are many reasons that would, would kind of encourage someone to leave. And those are valid reasons, you, you have to admit. But But obviously, in an ideal situation, imagine the potential of our country if everyone stays around like we would be I, when I'm overseas I hear people talk about Malaysia like some rural jungle and Singapore like this metropolitan city that's like 23rd century but you go to Singapore it's like it's like KL you know I mean you, you, go, to, you go to some parts of KL it looks exactly like Singapore and I just don't think Malaysia gets enough credit on the world stage but, but yeah I guess that's what people like you and me have to change um, okay, this, this is again to Izati. Um, so the final question, right? What are you most excited for the Rhodes Scholarship? Um, so I'm most excited about meeting other Rhodes Scholars. I think for the most of my life, I've been inspired by great people and great people have pushed me to become the people I'm today. Um, and I feel like the Rhodes Scholarship, um, being in the Rhodes communities, and a great opportunity for me to be inspired by many more amazing individuals and learn from other people and learn from other cultures, other backgrounds, other communities, which I love learning from diversity. So I'm very much excited about meeting a lot of interesting people and also just like living in Oxford. There's a lot of things to be excited about. Talking about ambitions, uh, we can transition to our final two questions and the first one is any lessons or words of encouragement you'd like to share to the listeners out there who are in similar positions to yours some things that we've already touched on right i think what john jonathan was saying about first the yolo it's kind of dumb but it's kind of true um really there is no regret there is no shame in putting yourself out there I feel like to a lot of youth in Malaysia, I think that fear of embarrassing yourself really stops you from trying things that could really develop you as a person, but it's hella scary. Like debate or public speaking, you know that doing these things will develop your skills as a person, but you're too scared of like messing up to give yourself a shot. So I think words of encouragement would be believe in yourself more and believe and trust the process no one is born this amazing leader right leaders i believe are created and shaped through life experiences rather than born as leaders i firmly believe that so if you sort of you know have a vision and have a goal put yourself out there you know apply for that position apply for that scholarship apply for that university that you think is like beyond your reach but who knows? Maybe, you know, you reach for the stars and you might get something out of it. Rather than regretting the shots you don't take, you know, you just, you just gotta have some faith in yourself. 
to take that leap of faith because honestly I think I've done that a lot of times in my life and although I fumbled a lot a lot that people don't really see but the steps that I've taken in the missteps and all have gotten me to where I am today and the person I am now so yeah don't be afraid to mess up yeah your your story and words of encouragement are really really inspirational so our last question is where do you see yourself in five years and in 30 years in five years so i would have just graduated from Rhodes, oxford um three years right i sort of see myself in public policy research be it in either a consulting team like Dahlberg that does a lot of like NGO consulting or in think tanks like Hazana Research Institute in Malaysia doing policy briefs for the government or even in the government itself um, doing policy research for them directly in-house so that's what sort of I see myself in five years time in 30 years time hmm so what how old would I be by then I would be 54 <laughs> it is so old I don't know okay it's gonna sound ambitious, but you know, I believe in dreaming big. Perhaps being the first female prime minister if one hasn't been elected by that point. I really hope someone would have been elected by that point. Um, but if not have been, which is very sad, maybe it would be me. We'll see. Azati, thank you very much for all your responses. And I hope that you will achieve all your ambitions and become prime minister of Malaysia one day and make your country a better place. To our listeners, thank you for listening to our podcast and don't forget to subscribe us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on Instagram at jagged.world. Have a good day and see you in next episode.